Welcome to the Real Estate Woman's Podcast. Thanks for pulling up a chair to our roundtable discussion. Here, we'll teach you how you can create a stream of passive income through multifamily investing, and we'll help you to shift your mindset so you can start living the life you really want to be living by design today. Hey guys, we are the Real Estate Women, and I'm Crystal. I'm Candy. I'm Colleen. And I'm Tamara. Welcome to the Passive Investing Podcast. In today's episode, we're going to talk about underwriting, how you should look over a deal uh, and determine it from underwriting if it's a good or bad investment. Hi, Craig. Welcome to the, to the podcast. Hi, ladies. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much. So Craig has spent the last 20 years in the high tech industry, working in intelligence, analytics and program management. And most recently, he joined Creed Capital as their director of operations and acquisition specialist. Craig has been investing in real estate for five years. And in addition to investing in real estate, Craig has leveraged his experience to develop a set of underwriting tools to help multifamily investors like us, analyze and research investment opportunities. Craig, thank you so much for coming on and, and none better to talk about underwriting when it, you really have to understand it if you have written a program to help you navigate the numbers and make it all work together. So um, for all of our listeners out there, this is one thing that a lot of people they see the numbers, they want to understand what they mean. Um, the returns can be very appealing, but it's really important to understand how they all interact and what they work, how they work. So, but just for the basics, you know, sometimes people don't even understand what underwriting is. You know, people refer to it all the time. Can you kind of describe what um, underwriting is for um, our listeners? Yeah. So in, in simple terms, underwriting is just analyzing a deal to see if it makes sense to invest in it. And there are lots of inputs that go into underwriting, right? So uh, when I was in the single family house days, I was looking at one property and I was trying to figure out how much income that property would make and how much income or how much I would have to spend to get that property in shape. Uh, multifamily mm -hmm. is like that, but infinitely more complex because you have a lot of units, you have a lot of moving pieces. We get a lot of uh, data from the sellers that we have to process and analyze to determine whether or not the deal makes sense. And for the numbers that you put in, where do you initially you start off with what the seller is presenting to you? Um, are there, are there ways to um, like how, how, when those numbers go in, how, how, does that like set uh, the underwriting to to move forward like can you explain like what that does when you enter them where do you go from there yeah so i'll kind of explain to you the process that we go through so it's kind of like peeling an onion right so first thing we get is an offering memorandum in most cases for an on-market deal and that offering memorandum is the broker's best case scenario he's outlining the deal and uh, you always take it with a grain of salt because chances are it is exactly that best case scenario <laughs> But we look at that to see if it meets our criteria in terms of age, location, size. And then we decide if we want to kind of proceed forward with some kind of underwriting. So underwriting, I would say we can evaluate a deal very much, like very quickly at a high level in about 10 minutes. And then we kind of decide if we want to move forward and then we evaluate it and spend another 30 minutes digging into some of the details. 
And then I go through that process multiple times before we actually go through in issuing an LOI or an offer. But the data we look at is um, a lot of times with an offering memorandum, we'll get a rent roll. So we can see exactly how the property is performing, uh, what rents they are getting versus what we think they could get in the market. And then we'll get a T12, which is a trailing 12 month of the income and expenses at the property by line item. So we can see how the property has trended. We can see how their uh, debt default is, how their collections are, what rents they're actually receiving, some of the other income items and how their expenses have trended. So we'll, we'll do a deep dive in all the expenses to make sure that they all make sense. And then we port that into the underwriting model and we're able to do our analysis to say, well, this is where the property is today. This is where we think we can bring it to uh, after either a renovation or some operational efficiencies. And then we run it through the model and see what kind of returns it can generate for us and our investors. Perfect. Thank you. That was a really great high level um, explanation of that. And I think a key takeaway for the um, listeners that they should realize is um, the two, two things there. The, what the property is doing right now, that has to be brought out from real, true, actual numbers. And then what it could do, that is going to be the um, sponsor or the, the lead of the deal. That's going to be their um, educated guess on what it could do. So for mm -hmm. a passive investor, this is where you have to do your due diligence and start asking the right questions on the right line items to make sure that that um, sponsor to the deal isn't inflating things or isn't being too dramatic or isn't saying that they can achieve the world for nothing. So um, right. when it comes to that, Craig, what do you think are, um, you know, what are some of the easiest and biggest red flags that maybe yeah. if you've looked at somebody else's underwriting and you can say, oh, well, that's super unrealistic. That just can't happen that way. What are some things that our passive investors could really be on the lookout for um, when it comes to some of those important numbers? What are, what are, yeah, I can probably give you a list of 40 things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. In the highest uh, sense, right? So first of all, you got to trust the sponsor, right? So mm -hmm. understand the sponsor, understand their track record. Um, ask them about the assumptions that went into their underwriting because uh, underwriting is a set of, uh, I mean, hundreds of inputs, literally, and, and you can make a lot of adjustments to those inputs. You can make a lot of assumptions in your model to basically generate any output that you want, right? So understanding the assumptions that went into it. Some of the big assumptions that really affect underwriting are cap rates. So this is a capitalization rate. It's basically the measure of the return that the property can produce um, based on the purchase price without any debt or financing in place, right? So. We kind of look at cap rates to evaluate properties side by side, kind of gives a level playing field. Uh, underwriting models it, are hugely sensitive to cap rates. So they, they greatly affect the output, mm -hmm. especially in the, the IRR metric. So it's really important to understand the cap rate assumptions that they're using and how that relates to other similar type assets in the market that they're purchasing the property at and what their cap rate assumption is in the future, right? So uh, it's common practice to take your cap rate and escalate it a little bit every year until you exit that property. So understanding how they're escalating their cap rate, what their assumptions are for the cap rate over time. Um, 
I would say the other things I tend to look at are financing. What kind of financing are they getting on the property? It's going to have a huge impact. Uh, and depending on the level of risk they're willing to take on with the property, right? So there are certain financing options that are more risky than others. I would say uh, a lot of people that took on bridge debt, which is a variable rate debt over the last couple of years, and now that rates have increased pretty substantially, um, that means there's a very likely a huge increase into the debt service of that property, which could affect returns, right? So understanding their financing assumptions. And then um, I, I'd say the other thing that I'm really sensitive to are rent growth, right? So in a lot of markets that we're looking at, we're seeing rent growth taper off and even a little bit down year on year. So understanding what their rent growth assumptions are, especially in year one, year one has an outsized impact of the model. So what are they forecasting for rent growth in this year that's separate from the renovation strategy that they plan to implement? Like what is a rent growth assumption? Um, I'd say those are, are the really big things that I tend to look at. And then just generally speaking, what, what I would like to see is like what's in place today. So I, I think this gets left out of a lot of OMs that I see or uh, investor presentations. It's like, Where's the property today in terms of income, expenses, and net income? And where do you expect to get to in year one? Because if, if they're forecasting like a 30% net income growth in year one, that's probably a red flag, right? 10% would be good, especially if there's a big renovation going on in year one. You're not going to get a huge net income bump until that renovation is played out in one or two years. So that, that's also a big red flag. If I see really huge year one net, net income growth, I'm going to ask the questions, understand that assumption. So Craig, just for those uh, listeners that, you know, for the first time of hearing cap rate, yeah. um, <laughs> that's a complex, it's, it's not a complex, but yet it is. And it really is something that is very important into understanding the underwriting. So could you touch a little bit more? Like, so if I'm looking at a deal, is there a relative uh, relationship to growth? And does does the cap, just if you could just break down, a, a, give a bunch of examples in like layman's terms for people to understand. So does cap rate grow as a property grows? Does it, it does it, is the opposite? Like, how does all this work so that if I don't really have a complete understanding of the term cap rate, how could I look at something after listening to this podcast and say, okay, so relatively it's moving in this direction and that direction as we're pivoting, because you can, you can evaluate mm -hmm. a property with your due diligence that you've done on the area and the numbers that we just talked about and have a not complete understanding of cap rate at the same time, because it's, it's a complex, complex issue. Yeah. Cap rates are kind of, I'd say when I started underwriting multifamily, I think that was the the biggest thing that I, I had I struggled with was cap rate. And it's not because the calculation is difficult. It's because there's some subjectivity to cap rates, which I right. found challenging because I'm more of a data guy. I want like yes or no. <laughs> like, I don't yeah. like subjectivity in that. But as you start to underwrite deals in specific markets, you get a better feel for what's going on with cap rate. But in simple terms, cap rate really is it the net operating income divided by the market value of that property gives you a cap rate. So if I have 
net income of $10,000 and my property is worth $100,000, that's a 10% cap rate. Similarly, we also use cap or the cap rate equation to determine what the value of the property is, right? So if I have property that's producing $10,000 of income a year, I could divide it by the cap rate and then get $100,000 would be the value of that property. So this is how we use cap rate. So what we do is we'll, we'll trend out our pro forma, our discounted cash flow, and we'll say, we want to sell in year five. This is what my net operating income is divided by the cap rate, and it will give me my value. So determining that cap rate, right? There's some subjectivity over what you think the cap rate is going to do in the mm -hmm. future. And so a conservative rule of thumb is that uh, most operators will escalate that cap rate though. We, we can tell what the cap rate is today because we'll have our purchase price and we know what the in-place income is at that property and we can devise the cap rate, right? So like a 5% is a kind of a common cap rate right now. And so what we could say, well, let's say we're going to increase value of that property. We're going to increase the net operating income of that property over five years. We started with a five cap, but I'm going to escalate that cap, maybe 10 basis points a year so that when we sell, I'm going to use a five and a half percent cap rate. It's a little bit more conservative. We've been seeing cap rates compress for a long time. We're starting mm -hmm. to see them kind of creep back up a little bit. Nobody really knows what the future holds. So it's more conservative to go ahead and increase that cap rate over time. But it's it's still kind of, uh, cap rates are very unique to the, the location of your property, the type of asset class you're, you're looking at. Because if you have a nice class A asset, which is like brand new, top of the line, everything, you're gonna have a very small cap rate because there's not gonna be a lot of risk associated with that property. Mm -hmm. If you have a, let's say a C-class asset, so 1970s-ish kind of needs a lot of work, uh, there's a lot more risk and, and then the tenant base is more likely to default, things like that. So things that you have to consider, mm -hmm. uh, there's more risk associated with that type of deal. So you would expect the cap rate to be a little bit higher on that. So you want a better return on a riskier asset. Does that help? So a cap rate has it, it only is in relative to the income and the price of the property. Yeah. And it has nothing to do with um evaluate. Let me see if I can word this correctly. Don't look at a cap rate and see the difference between the starting and exiting cap rate and think, oh, that's great. There's so much distance between the two. That's a great pro great property to, to invest in. Would that be a correct to, 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 to not do that? <laughs> yeah, not that alone, right? Yeah. It, it's really yeah. important to understand uh -huh. uh, how they arrived at the cap rate for today. So like, did they use the income of the property and the purchase price to figure out their market cap? Or, I mean, sometimes it, if you get a great screaming deal on a property and you know you're buying it below market, that it's, it's going to adjust that cap rate because you're getting a good deal. So you really want to know what's going on in the market for the, the asset that that's located in. Mm -hmm. And so what, what are similar properties trading for? What are the cap rates? And you can get that information through various sources. So a lot of operators will use either Crexy or CoStar. There's third-party sources that kind of aggregate sales data can kind of provide guidance in cap rates, but it is, there's a little bit of subjectivity because, um, uh, it, it really depends on asset class location. And like I said, 
because of this um, relationship of income and cap rate and price, uh, a tiny little change in cap rate, like a 10 basis point from like five to 5.1 can have tremendous impact on your exit price. So it's, it's really important to like dial it in. And there's no exact science, unfortunately, for, for and, it's and I think taking into consideration all the factors that you have. Perfect. And I think to kind of answer your question too, Candice, like for uh, the LP investor, what is what their thoughts should be when they see a five cap on exit and a 5.5 on exit on a five-year hold? The only thing that could really tell you is that, well, they are being conservative when it comes to the cap rate. That's what the LP investor mm -hmm. would see out of that. So that is definitely good. That can be one of the big checks, okay? That looks like they're being conservative, but to Craig's point, how did they come to that five cap rate in the beginning mm -hmm. is the really important. And remembering it's mm -hmm. market subjective. So if you're looking at an A-class asset in... Um, yeah, I don't know, Texas versus Boston, that could be a completely different cap rate, um, despite the fact that they could be the same asset class. So it is important to maybe go to that operator and ask, how did you come to that? Because um, yeah. they should have an answer for you. Right, Craig, did I miss anything important That's in that? Perfect. Yeah, very well said. Yeah. Cool. And uh, one other thing I think that would be um, good for the kind of maybe the listeners to think about too, one thing that you mentioned when it comes to the rent raises and the increased rate for that first mm -hmm. year, um, definitely remember for an LP, maybe you think they should ask things like, well, are you including vacancy rates? Because if they're saying, well, we're going to turn over 50% of these units, but they their vacancy yeah. rate is at like 4%. Well, that's a super unrealistic thing. There's a big red flag there because you can't have a 4% vacancy if you're turning over all of this in year one. So those are some yeah. little things like Craig mentioned that year one is really where um, a lot of the levers can be pulled. Um, and coming back kind of to that, that year one uh, P&L view, that line that they're looking at that says all the year one stuff they're going to do. Um, other than things like that vacancy rate, is there another big one or big thing that someone could look at and say, well, that's just not a realistic number or any other little, like, I guess, red flags that you see a lot in that? Yeah, so, yeah great question. Um, yeah, so vacancy in year one, really good question. So this was a big issue that I had. Um, when I started underwriting is the vacancy in, in a lot of models is just going to lump together. And so when I built my model, I, I separated out the renovation vacancy and the, the model calculates my re renovation vacancy based on my strategy, my timeline. So that gets plugged in and then I can model my vacancy on top of that. So that super helpful to understand how much of your vacancy are you planning for renovation and how much for just simple unit terms, right? normal unit turns that you see through the year. But another one that is, is pretty big in a lot of properties, um, especially value add properties is loss to lease. And so what this is, it's just saying your, your gross potential rent. So what is the maximum you could get if you had every unit at market rent with no vacancy, no issues, right? That is your maximum. And then what are you actually getting on the property based on your lease signing. So this is why I look at a rent roll so, so extensively is because I want to see what they think their market rent is and what they're actually getting. And that gap between market rent and actual is your loss to lease. And then a lot of value add properties that maybe are mismanaged or not really pushing the rents to the market, there could be a very large loss to lease number. So it's always important to understand if there's a large loss to lease at the property and what is the strategy to kind of make up that difference, right? Is it 
through the renovation that they expect to kind of bridge the gap on that loss of lease and get market rents up, or are they going to start pushing rents on renewals? But I've seen um, some underwriting where their loss to lease is really big in the T12 or the historical data or the rent roll. And then in year one, it's like 4%, might be like 15%. So to go from like 15% loss to lease to 4% loss to lease would be really uh, a big stretch in, in one year. Uh, and then the other thing kind of, kind of bundles everything together, right? So you have your gross potential rent and then you have all these things that could take away from your rent, right? So vacancy, bad debt, loss to lease, renovation vacancy. Um, so the way I measure this is through economic vacancy. So this, this one I look at quite a lot, right? So economic vacancy is just your gross potential rent minus all those income detractors to get to your effective gross income. So that difference is your economic vacancy. So if a property has an economic vacancy of like 30% in place, and they're expecting that economic vacancy to get to 10% in year one, that that's a really aggressive schedule, right? So I tend to look at economic vacancy quite a lot because it kind of just gets rid of some of that noise between loss to lease and all those other. So what would be a value, like a 5%? Did you say 10%? Yeah, it depends on what they're doing with the property. So if if they're looking to just stabilize a property, and it depends on the asset class and all, all this stuff, right? But uh, on a really nice class A asset, maybe economic vacancy is close to 7%, 7, 8, on, and on up to maybe like a 12, 13% for like the class C. So somewhere in that range would be normal if you have a really big renovation that's happening let's say you have an operator that's going to renovate all the units in two years i would expect that economic vacancy is going to be pretty high in year one mm -hmm. probably in year two as well right so we're going to see that probably 15 to 20 percent economic vacancy i would expect and keep in mind if, if you have an operator that's um, doing a big renovation we're going to see pretty low cash on cash returns during those years of renovation because we're pulling units off. There's a lot of vacancy, this economic vacancy number's high, but then when that property stabilizes, you're probably going to want to expect to see double digit cash on cash return. So this has um, been really good information to talk about and like thinking about our listeners um, from the standpoint of, attempting to keep it simple um just what comes to mind is like the you know the renovations and all that it's you know kind of it goes back to like the know like and trust and the history of you know have they done this before have, you know the renovation stuff to you know i don't want to say steer away from the numbers a little bit but like to to put that in the mesh of the underwriting that we're speaking of today because uh, that is really important. You know, do they have, you know, the right trades in place? So they have the right, have they done this before? You know, like the rinse and repeat part of that portion really, you know, cause the numbers, you can put any numbers on paper. It's, you know, what's the performance of that happening in the past? Yeah. Yeah. I think just understanding the operator, right. The GP mm -hmm. team, understanding their experience, Talk to other investors that have invested with them, 
understand what their experience has been. I think it's because really some cool. of this, I mean, the underwriting part could be, you know, a tad overwhelming or overwhelming actually for the listeners. So then that's, you know, you, you need to have an understanding um, of all this and that it's not just as simple as what's the rent and where are we going to, you know, so that's, you really um, open that um, portion of the knowledge that we really bring need, need to bring to the table. So. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at the underwriting, Craig, for let's say as a limited partner, um, what are the, if you were just to, to be presented to it, your, your key uh, numbers that you would look at first as, and then, at, you know, obviously then take in consideration everything that, that Tamara has just described at yeah. to bringing it all together. What would be the key things that you would look at? Yeah. As you could probably tell, I love to get in the weeds, right? <laughs> so it's like, but uh, yeah, so um, I attend pretty much every investor webinar that I can on deals just to kind of see how things are presented, see what questions kind of come up for me. And I, I think there's um, uh, there's a lot of different ways to present the data and raise a lot of questions with me. So I think what I, I tend to look at, um, almost every operator is seems to be offering like an eight to 10% cash on cash, a 15% IRR mm -hmm. return. So that that's pretty much standard across any deal you look at. So how do you know if the deal you're actually looking at is good or not? And I think what I wanna see is, uh, I wanna see what their business, I wanna see very clearly what their business strategy is, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, I just attended a, a webinar and I'm like, I, I had no idea what they were gonna do that I knew they were renovating, but other than that, I had no idea what their costs were, how much, how many units, what their assumptions were during the renovation, how long it was mm -hmm. going to take up. So th these are things that really have an impact. They had, they never mentioned the cap rate. Uh, so I, I do want to know the cap rate. I think this is, I cannot emphasize this enough. The cap rate has an outsized impact on the returns in the model. So I think it's critical to understand from your operator, like how are they determining their cap rate? And what is their assumption for cap rate on exit? And how did they come up with that logic? Super, super important. Uh, and then this is kind of an inside thing. Like the, the next two things that I, I tend to drill in on, because it's come up a lot in my underwriting, is um, what are their expense assumptions? We've seen expenses go through the roof mm -hmm. in a lot of properties. Right. So rent growth we talked about, but expense assumptions, because um, we, we just got an insurance quote for a property that was $3,500 a door, which is insane, wow. right? It's so expensive. So what are the, the assumptions for expenses? What, what's happening with insurance? And then the other expense that we have very little control over that is impacting a lot of properties are taxes. What are their okay. tax assumptions? Have they done their homework on the tax projections, right? So what we like to do is we'll hire a, uh, a tax attorney that says that they, they know what's going on in the local municipality and they can tell us, well, you can expect an increase. So have they done this homework on their taxes? Because I think some operators have gotten surprised by reassessments. So yeah. taxes are your biggest expense. Mm -hmm. uh, insur insurance is starting to become the biggest. The next one is usually payroll, but insurance is getting up there. So I those are the things I look at. I don't know if that's super simple, but so no, I operate expenses. I want to know and renovation. What's their plan? 
That's so funny. We were just talking about it too before we hopped exactly. off. We we're just talking about the expenses, just talking about the reality of what insurances and taxes are really doing. Like we were literally just talking yeah. about it. So it's funny. You can have a whole podcast on that. Yeah, seriously, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> and this is all been, gosh, so great. And um, you know, I did have one other thing. If you could kind of elaborate something that you mentioned, the the key things that you're going to see that maybe an LP might look at this um, offering memorandum and look and be like kind of confused by cash on cash and IRR and mm-hmm. um, a preferred return. Those are kind of three things that everybody yeah. puts out there and someone that's new. Well, yeah. what does that really mean to them? Like you said, the cash on cash is greatly affected by the cap rate. Could, is that, could you, those three items, could you just give a, like a high level yeah. what they mean in, to um, an LP investor? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I, I kind of visualize my underwriting like top to down and, and there are metrics to kind of measure each stage of the underwriting. So cash on cash, I see very much as an operational metric. So it, it basically says I, I invested $100,000 into a deal and in year one, I'm going to get $10,000 back from the operation of that property, right? So it's producing cash flow. I'm getting $10,000 back. That is a 10% cash on cash return. And then hopefully I see that grow over the time of the life of the property. So I can get an average cash on cash return for the whole period. Um, like I said, uh, it, I, I definitely look at cash on cash a lot because it tells me how the property is going to operate. So if they're doing a big renovation, as I mentioned earlier, cash on cash might be really low in year one, might be two or 3%, right? So good to understand the, the cash on cash outlay. And a lot of investors will put that table in their OM so you can see that. But so cash on cash is that um, piece. Uh, the other one was IRR, right? Yeah. So IRR, this one, if you ever try to calculate it manually, it's super difficult, but it's IRR is a rate of return, right? So it takes into yeah. consideration the time value of money. So what it does is it looks at all the money that you put into a deal. It looks at all the money that the deal generated either through operations or capital events like a refinance or sale. And then it looks at your capital return. So it, it requires a return of capital, your initial investment, and then it takes into consideration the time, the amount of time that went by. And it basically discounts everything back to today's dollar. So Long story short, it, it takes into consideration all the cash inflows, outflows of the property and the time required to generate that return to produce an IRR. So like I said, a lot of investors will, will you know, present a 15% or 70% IRR. Uh, and then I'll, I'll make one note, like one, one that I like a lot and it's very simple. It's just a simple ROI but it's also called an equity multiple. Oh, yes. So I really like this one because it's, it's using the exact same data as the IRR, but it's not doing the discounting process. So mm-hmm. if, if I invested $100,000 into a deal and it has an equity multiple of two, that means I'm going to double my money mm-hmm. during the whole of that project, right? So for me, that's really easy to understand. I can see the equity multiple and know how much money I'm gonna get out of this deal. So that's a 200% ROI, basically. Thank you. Yes, that was one that I do personally always look at and completely yeah. slip my mind not having an OM, in front of, an OM in front of me. So thank you for that. That is definitely a really, really important one. It's the best high-level way to tell the stories, really. Yeah, it's really straightforward. There's 
no funny business going on in that one. Yeah. <laughs> Just calculation. Yep, yep. As long as you can uh, look back and make sure the numbers they put in are legit, make sure you've gone in and if you see that uh, two equity multiplier, but everything, all those other red flags that we mentioned are kind of crazy. Well, where are they? Are some, there might be somewhere they're pulling some kind of funny lever, but definitely. Yep. Awesome. Yeah, and I, I saw just just for your, your audience, I did see a deal recently presented where I had a really great IRR. It had like a, I think it was eighteen or nineteen percent IRR. Mm-hmm. I was like, that that's unheard of. How are they doing it? Well, they had an exit planned in two years, so IRR is very time sensitive. So sure. the, their goal was to get in and basically get out right away, and that their their cash on cash wasn't great, but the IRR was really big, so. Good example how it's very sensitive to the whole people that hold properties for 10 years may have a lower IRR as a result. And I guess that that's also that's so where the investor can kind of look at, okay, how long do I want to put my money? Is this the right business plan for me? This goes back to them mm-hmm. knowing the deal, yes. knowing the business plan and what do they want for their money? Would they rather have a higher multiplier and, you know, let their money sit there for a while? Or and what do you think about when they, that comes to risk? That if you're gonna sell, if you're gonna have a quick sale, well, what's that market gonna be in the two years? Is that accurate? If that's counting on that sale, that could be a higher risk. Um, but again, higher money. So it's it's yeah. all one of those things to ask yourself: What do you want to do with your capital? Does that line up with their business plan? So you do have to yeah. know what you, as an investor, want to do with your money before you um, before you can look at a deal and say this is great because this might be great for me. Uh, yeah, you can have my capital for five years where someone's like, no, I want three longest. And that's a really good point. We've been talking to our investors and we're we're finding that a lot of our investors uh, really just want the cash flow. They want to hold, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's an issue. There's a problem that happens. If if you get into a deal and they sell it in three years, you get your money and you get the return. That's great. But now you have to go find another place to park that money. And that could pose a problem, especially if you're trying to 1031, you have a short time window to find a new investment. And some of our investors are like, I don't want to deal with that. I just give me the cash on cash, give me the depreciation and let me run with that. Right. So it, it depends on your strategy as an investor on which metrics you really focus on. Good point. Good point. Yeah. This has been great. It's been really informative. Um, Craig, if our listeners want to learn more about you, what you do, they want to reach out to you, is there a way they could get a hold of you and get in contact? Yeah, I have a, I have a few websites. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say, uh, yeah, you can reach out to me um, either at Vivid Invest, like vividinvest.com. Uh, you can contact me there, or uh, my underwriting website is the MFA, like Michael Foxtrot Alpha, underwriting.com. Click the contact, that'll come right to me. Yeah. Well, we like to uh, kind of wrap up each of our podcasts with a kind of a thought provoking quote of the day, kind of discuss it. Um, so, Tamara has three um, quotes with her that she's picked out that are kind of pertinent to what you do. Could you pick a number one through three and we can discuss it? Okay. Number one. <laughs> Number one. So number one is uh, in learning, you will teach and in teaching, you will learn. And that was by Phil Collins, actually. Wow. 
It's awesome. So am I supposed to comment on that? Well, yeah, if you'd like to comment, like how it like, you know, resonates yeah. with you or, you know. Kind of sounds like what he's right. doing. <laughs> right? no, actually, this, it does resonate with me. My personality is like, uh, I, I love teaching. I love talking about this stuff, obviously. Right. And I, mm -hmm. I love teaching people like the ins and outs. And I definitely love data. Right. And I think it's so cool that you could take a, all this data and you could tell a story with it. Right. You could mm -hmm. find insights, tell a story. And I love teaching people how to do that. I think it's super cool to see the light bulb go on. Uh -huh. So I think that definitely resonates. Yeah, I try to learn something every day. And uh, and so, and then that's where in like telling and helping others, like sharing knowledge, you do end up like learning something yourself or, or just about the person maybe, or even about something else. Yep. I have a call right after this, uh, where I'm going to teach somebody how to underwrite. And, you know, like you said, it's like you, you learn through teaching as well, because mm -hmm. this guy's sure. really sharp and he asks a lot of hard questions. So it <laughs> definitely gets me to learn. He wants too. to engineer that box, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that quote really makes me realize too. I think a lot of times when you're teaching someone something, you tend to learn a lot about yourself. Like, oh, okay, like right. if that's for me. I realize things like about myself, I should improve in this way or in that way or um, how different things resonate with one person versus the other. But it's definitely, I think, one of the best benefits of teaching is what you can learn yourself. Yeah. Like in this podcast, we're trying to help LP investors learn and we have super amazing guests like you come on and we end up learning a ton of stuff ourselves. So it's, it's always great to have such knowledge. Yeah, thank you for having me. This has been great. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, well, yeah, well, I mean, I think in conclusion, really, this episode has been really fabulous. We thank you so much for really pointing out all the different things that our um, guests and listeners can look for, because it is super crucial to have those uh, bullet points. I think, you know, they should, um, our listeners should take away the fact that they should know what they want to do with their capital, what do they want to achieve. Um, you know, maybe re-listen to this again, write down those little red flags that you should look at. Um, and don't be afraid to ask the sponsor um, the hard questions because you have to do your due diligence and if the, um, any good sponsor, they'll know their numbers and they will be more than willing to share it with you because that's the facts. That's the business plan. And the more they share with you, the more solidified it will be. So if ever they don't want to share, then that would maybe be a little red flag. So, um, they, we just really want to say thank you to um, not only you, Craig, but to our listeners for joining us here at the round table. Um, and if you ever want to learn more, you can always check us out on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and of course, visit our website at The Real Estate Women. Um, but I hope you guys, your listeners, had as much fun as we did here uh, talking about this. So thanks again. And uh, thanks so much again, Craig. All right. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Craig. Bye, everyone. Bye. The information contained in this podcast is for educational purposes only. We are not licensed professionals and do not give investment advice, tax advice, or other professional advice. Please consult a licensed professional before making any financial decisions.